Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome back to Weapon of Choice Podcast. We're glad to have you tuning in, listening, as always. My name is Tommy Franklin. Um, hanging out here. Andrew is a little wrapped up in the uh, uh, music project. He's uh, been grinding with some other amazing artists, uh, producing some work. And uh, we're glad to have you back. Um I miss Andrew anytime there's a anytime we don't get a chance to sit down and rap and record and we're here to bring you our season two finale we're so happy to get to this point with everyone um appreciate everyone's support our goal was to double our interviews in season two from 10 in season one to 20 in season two and here we are on our 20th interview so Without any further ado, let's get into that. But let me remind y'all where to find us, anywhere you get your podcasts, on social media, at Weapon of Choice Podcast on Instagram, Facebook the same, at Weapon of Choice Podcast. And if you're on Twitter, at Weapon Choice Pod, love to hear from you, love to engage, shout us out, give us a line, drop us a line, share us on Facebook. We'll give you the love back. This interview is a great one. We, I was uh, honored to um, be able to catch Safia Hillo while she was on tour, winding down her tour, and she had a Minneapolis stop. So uh, she was great. Um, she took the time before her show. Uh, there was a Button Poetry Live event that she was headlining, and she uh, took the time to sit down with me and hang out a little bit and have a good conversation. It was great. We were at the Minneapolis Central Library, downtown Minneapolis, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm glad um, that we both were able to appreciate that. And she is a book lover. She is quite the reader, and uh, I think we had a really good conversation. She has this really intense cool about her. I don't even know what that means, an intense cool, but um, just awesome, laid back. Um, I don't know, her coolness has an intensity and, 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 and a warmth that makes you feel like uh, you're instant friends. I don't know. So, Safia Hillo, where do we begin? She's Sudanese by way of Washington, D.C., She's the author of The January Children, an amazing book, and it was the recipient of the 2016 Silliman First Book Prize for African Poets and the 2018 Arab American Book Award. So get that. Check that out. The January Children. Order that for you and yours. And also with Fatima Asghar, she's the co-editor of the anthology Halal If You Hear Me. You feel that? 
And her work has been translated into Arabic, Japanese, Estonian, Portuguese, Slovenian, and Greek. And who knows, maybe some more translations on the way. I sure hope so. Safi has been featured on many of the platforms you love. She's been a recipient of too many honors and awards to name here. And she is a powerhouse. So watch out and keep watching out for Safia. And I witnessed the effects she had on people um, who read her work, talk to a friend who's uh, who's uh, who loves her work. And, you know, it's 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 amazing. Check out her poetry. Check out all of it for sure. So, um, yeah, we just talked. We sat down in that library and you could hear it open up and we connected. We had a good time. So this is me and Safia Hillo, surrounded by books in the downtown Minneapolis Central Library. Enjoy. Um, my name is Safia Hillo, and I am a writer. Awesome. Safia, welcome to Weapon of Choice podcast. Thank you for having me. So if, you, if you're thinking, um, if you can pinpoint a, a specific age, thinking back to a time or a memory when you realized you're not normal? Uh, day one. <laughs> <laughs> Birth. Yeah. Um, my family moved around a lot um, when I was younger, so we moved countries a lot, and I was often... I mean, there were a lot of rooms where I was the only black person, um, most rooms where I was the only Sudanese person, a couple rooms where I was the only Muslim, so I... You know, I, I think I was kind of aware of my relative otherness pretty early on. Hmm. Um, but also, like, I, I was a, a weird kid, and I think I self-identified as, like, a strange person. Um, so there was never really a whole lot of, like, angst or trauma around it. I just, you know, was, like, having fun in my weird little world. Yeah. Did, around, you know, around the race and identity at such a young age, did you go home and would, would you ask your parents certain questions, and how would those conversations go? Um, I don't remember asking a whole lot of questions. I think, you know, it started happening early enough um, that I don't think I was considering an alternate version of events ever. So I didn't know that it wasn't supposed to be like that, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I don't know that I would have known what question to even ask. I thought that was just sort of the the cards that I'd been handed or something. I don't know if that's a real saying, but. And so, you, so basically you ended up embracing that parallel of recognizing these different environments paralleled with your, you know, you identifying yourself as weird, but you know, in, in your own good way. And then you said, look, I understand that um, at such a young age, did you understand that um, um, navigating any given environment of daily life was not there was not going to be a, a you know just a guarantee of a of an environment because you you know was that did that stem from moving so so much so early on yeah I think and I don't know what age this necessarily set in but I think I for most of my life have had an awareness that this place that I live now is not where I am from like originally ancestrally whatever um, and so I think a lot of my thinking used to be tied into something that I thought of as homesickness or as this kind of longing for a national identity. Um, mm -hmm. So 
in the darker moments where it would be like, oh, I, I feel so out of place. Usually the accompanying thought would be, you know, if I had only grown up back home, then things would be different. Then I wouldn't feel this. Then I would feel more included and more like I have a context for who I am and how I am. Um, I think I've outgrown that a little bit um, where I still, you know, I feel very Sudanese. I feel great attachment to Sudaneseness, um, but I think the nationalism of it is, has kind of, I think I've outgrown that. Mm. You know, from, from stages of living and then experiencing for longer periods of time, a world that is the U.S. or a world that is, you know, other, other parts of travel that you've done? I think it, yes. And, you know, countries are kind of, I don't know, a scam. Just, uh, just borders. You know, um, so it, I think eventually it just started to feel like this thing that I was wrapping so much of my identity around was ultimately this thing that was not real. Mm-hmm. Um, and that felt like someone else's decision and not my decision. You know, I didn't have a say in what makes Sudan, Sudan, mm-hmm. like geographically, geopolitically speaking. Mm-hmm. And yet it had so much of a say of what I was calling myself and what I felt like I was and should be and wasn't enough of. Um, so I, again, I still feel culturally like that contextualizes so much of who I am and how I am. But nationally, I don't know that I identify nationally with any mm. nation. What what age did that perspective shift? Oh, that happened like two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's the last two weeks been like when you've been thinking about it or having conversations with people you trust? Yeah, I mean, it's been maybe a little more than two sure. weeks, but like a couple years, I would say. Yeah. But I, you know, I think it might have, I think it was on its way out. Anyway, um, just because, you know, if maybe if I had lived my whole life here and had never gone back to Sudan, I would be able to preserve it as this sort of like mm-hmm. perfect, untainted, mythical homeland. Mm-hmm. But like I go back to Sudan all the time. I have a relationship with Sudan. My, most of my family lives there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think after a while, I started to realize that this like deep-seated existential angst that I felt that I thought being in Sudan would resolve. I realized that I was going back to Sudan plenty and I still felt the same stuff that I was always feeling. So it actually Mm. wasn't about Sudan. It was about something else. Mm. Oh, you left off with something else. Well, I'll let you know when I know what the something else is. (laughs) So what is your weapon of choice and what battles are you fighting? Uh, My weapon of choice is language and the battle I am fighting is, hmm, I think I'm fighting the battle to name myself so that maybe later on down the line, someone who is, you know, a big bookworm the way I was a big bookworm doesn't get to be like, whoa, I don't exist in literature. Hmm. And, you know, so the truth is, it's like, the truth is like sharp teeth, mm-hmm. you know, um, I feel like that's one of your weapons as well. Um, How do you sharpen the weapon that is truth telling? I read a lot. Um, I think my favorite feeling is knowing exactly the right word for an idea or for a concept. Um, 
And I can only ever achieve that feeling if I keep learning new words. Um, so I'm, I think my favorite feeling comes from being a reader and not a writer, hmm. where more so than myself coming up with like the right word for the thing I'm trying to express. My favorite feeling is reading someone else's work and being like, wow, how, how do you know that? I feel exactly that way too. I thought it was just me. Hmm. Well, that, <laughs> that making sense of uh, new words is, is interesting because um, in your poetry, you write and recite what you feel without resorting to platitudes, without using merely the contemporary words of the day. Hmm. So I wonder, one, how's that powerful for you? And two, how, how do you see your style moving audiences? Hmm. You know, I think it might be that I don't know a whole lot of platitudes because I, you know, I, I've spent most of my life sort of growing up outside of culture on the margins of culture. So there are like all these references I don't get and all these mm -hmm. TV shows I didn't watch as a kid and all this slang I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think most of the time that's like awkward and uncomfortable and it sucks, but it is helpful as a writer in that I don't, you know, I, I don't, ha I guess, run the risk of like accidentally using a platitude because I don't really know. I mean, I get things that I think are real figures of speech wrong all the time. So mm. you say, so you say on the margins of culture many times. So when you were a child growing up in, and in school, what, what was your social life like? Um, I was a pretty solitary kid. I think I, I'd have like one or two friends and we were really close, but I think I've always really enjoyed being by myself. And I think that's how I've liked to socialize my whole life where like here are the two, three people that I really enjoy being with. Most of the time I'll hang out with them like one or two at a time because I you know, crowds kind of give me a rash. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, not a whole lot has changed really. Hmm. Are you still close with those longtime friends? Yeah. 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 They're around. Yeah. Hmm. That was and, the group text I was referring to. And <laughs> oh yeah, I'm going to ask you off the record. <laughs> um, so the, you know, I've, I've, I understand the term hyphenated identity, but I've never really seen it written about a person or an artist. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about um, how, how kind of that shaped some of your thoughts on identity, um, entering, these, uh, entering several worlds as the average person doesn't? Mm. So I used to think that having a hyphenated identity only meant that I was Need, like never going to be fully one thing or another. Um, so, you know, I am Sudanese hyphen American. I am, uh, I don't know, Muslim hyphen American. I am black hyphen Arabic speaking. I think I used to shorten it and say I was black Arab, but I'm, I'm trying to be very specific with mm -hmm. language these days mm -hmm. um, and not just reach for the closest thing and try and actually name the specific thing. So I think I've always felt like I contain a multitude of things, but also that made it so that I could never fully be one thing or another. I could never fully be just Sudanese or just American. I could never fully be, I don't know, of 
one country or of another. It, it mostly came down to a national identity. I think everything else kind of left a little more room for nuance. But I think now it, it's more helpful for me to think of the fact that I don't know that anyone really is fully one thing or another anymore. I think, um, you know, the nation state as a construct is kind of going out of style. Um, and so many people are displaced and so many people are diasporic that mm -hmm. there are enough of us that are something slash something that that's like a whole valid full identity in itself now. So it's not mm -hmm. that I'm like half Sudanese, half American or whatever. I think now there are so many people that are Sudanese American as like a full third identity um, that now I don't think of it as like connecting two partial identities. I like to think of it as just being the name for a third entire identity. It's mm -hmm. like a Venn diagram. I'm in the middle of the Venn diagram. Yeah. Well, I mean, being more specific um, with how you, how you name these, these uh, several identities feels like that, that allows you to own that each identity more. Yeah. When you're, when you're more specific and congratulations on the January children. That's your book. Thank you. Um, but the title obviously comes from a lot of history. So can you can you tell tell us about the January children and what that's about? Yeah. So the January children are the generation born in Sudan. Uh, and I just found out this happened in other countries as well. But um, when I was coming up with the title, I was thinking specifically of the generation born in Sudan mm -hmm. under British occupation, um, where, you know, for like. I guess census and population purposes, they would go out into villages and they would line the children up and assign them birth years by height and give them all the birth day, January 1st, so they could issue them birth certificates and the like. Um, and my, my grandfather is a January child. He's of that generation. Um, <laughs> so I think it's one of those very specific terms that just contains a whole era just in making that small reference. And I think that's why it felt like the right title for the book. Um, hmm. And then in its way, it's also a little tribute to my grandpa because he's a poet and, uh, you know, part of the reason that I even know that poetry is a thing. So huh. it's like a little shout out to him and also like, here's a weird colonial thing that happens to my people. Yeah. Um, you know, so your, you know, your grandfather, elder, there's, there's a lot of historical figures that growing up in U.S. schools will never, ever learn about in the schools. And uh, it's just dawning on me very, very recently that a lot of historical figures, whether it's Sudan or India, um, when when I learn about them, they're all artists. Whereas like George Washington, yada, 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 <laughs> Abe Lincoln, whatever. They weren't really art. Most of them weren't artists. So it's like, it's kind of blowing my mind that like when you really look outside of, of the constructs of teachings and history that you're finding all, within these cultures, these ancient names and figures outside of this fucking, yeah. fucking country that <laughs> were also creative. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing. I mean, does that, does that feel like, um, that connects you more to your homeland though? Um, starting with your grandpa grandfather, since you're an artist. Well, I don't know that it's just my grandpa. I think my whole family, even just people I can name are all, hmm creative, artistically inclined people. I think I just happened to be an artist at a time and with a set of privileges where I get to pursue it. Mm -hmm. um, even like 
my grandfather's older sisters were also poets. Mm. But at the time that they were growing up and exploring that, girls weren't going to school. So they were also poets in this family, but they didn't know how to read and write. So they, you know, would come up with these poems and they'd recite them to each other and they'd memorize them. Hmm. And then they died. And, you know, so the poems went with them. Um, so my grandfather, yes, is like a, a very special and gifted poet, but also has the privilege of literacy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we get to have his poems as artifacts in the world. I have the privilege of literacy and like, I don't know, English fluency and the internet and mm-hmm. a graduate degree. And, you know, so all of those things intersected and that, like, yes, I am a poet because I'm curious about language and because I have a lot of stories to tell and because my grandpa made me think it was the coolest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. But also the reason I'm a poet, period, and not like a poet slash other job is because I think this is like a, a very specific moment where I like, as a young black Muslim Sudanese American woman, get to like be a poet like saying things visibly and in public for mm-hmm. money you know mm-hmm. like it's, it's wild <laughs> yeah uh, this this part of your uh incredible um um recalling and being able to recite long poems of yours by memories you credit partially to that to your grandfather's older sisters well so <laughs> here's a secret the poems are all very tiny they just all kind of go together and then it you're it go- comes out sounding like one long poem. But, yeah, yeah, but you're, when I'm like writing the poem and it's time to memorize it, each poem is like 30 seconds long. So, so that split second in your brain knows you're on to the next <laughs> poem and it's almost like only remembering a, 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 a ton of little songs and poems. That's cool. Um, how did your own imagination oxygenate and expand in the process of writing this book? I was doing a lot of research for writing this book and I think... Research has always been a component of my writing process, but I think especially with this book, I was just dealing with so much actual history and actual stuff in actual people's lives that Mm -hmm. I I felt a responsibility to know, to get it right and to tell the story properly. Um, And I think, you know, there, there could have been a version of the process where feeling that responsibility to actual facts would have limited my imagination and the the scope and the possibility of the project. But I think actually the more I learned, the more I felt like was possible for my imagination because then I had all these characters, these real people to then populate these imagined scenarios with. Mm. And I had all these like bits of actual trivia that I could then mythologize and turn into something else. So it was all, it all just felt like it was making the toolkit bigger. You know, as you've navigated different worlds, um, growing up and continuously in your life, how do you navigate any um, discomfort when you navigate those worlds and simultaneously think about identity personally and for your creativity? So I think what's been important for me in thinking and talking about identity is to clarify that it's my personal like process and naming and whatever, because, you know, I think in a lot of spaces that I work in, I'm like the first Sudanese 
person that a lot of people have met, which, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of us. It's, I'm surprised it took people that long. But then people hear things I say and are like, well, you know, that's what it's like for Sudanese people. Instead of like, that's what it's like for I, Safia. Um, so I think it's, it's more important for me now to always be like, this is, I am making an I statement, not like on behalf of the Sudan, here is what I have to say, you know, or on behalf of all Muslims everywhere, all black people mm-hmm. everywhere, here's what I have to say. So that's helpful for me and it's freeing for me because then I get to think out loud and, and be upfront about the fact that I don't have the full answer and that I'm just working out a lot of the stuff instead of like feeling this burden to say a thing out loud that then will be taken as an umbrella statement about everyone who comes from my background. Was there a period of time where you defaulted or subconsciously was, was more us, we versus I in your performance? Not us, we in that sense. Right. Um, but I think I... More clarification these days for the reactions that you get perhaps from a lot of white people. Yeah, well, I think what's helped me now is that I'm just not interested in making I or we statements to white people. Um, I think I used to feel like I had to explain myself and my people to sort of an outside gaze and be like, look, we're actually not scary or terrorists or whatever. Look how we're just like you. But that's so boring that like who wants to make art or even (laughs) make fucking conversation like that? That sucks. (laughs) So now... I'm not ever thinking about an outside ear or eye or gaze mm-hmm. when I'm reading or writing or talking because I'm not interested in being an ambassador or a tour guide or anything like that. So when I'm making work now, the person that I have in mind that I'm writing towards is a person who already understands my context and it already is in my community. So I'm, I'm writing towards that us and that we. And I, you know, I, I'm writing imagining that I'm talking to my friends or my family or my community instead of writing to make this sort of outward facing statement to someone who I need to prove my humanity to or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even though much of like life itself took you down roads of diverse environments, um, countries, um, is there, is there, are there ways that you encourage that for people in terms of, you know, encouraging, even if it's just travel, um, Maybe not just specifically for black people, but you know, it's, I don't, I don't want to put shade on our, on our people, but obviously we don't necessarily have privilege or opportunity or sometimes self-awareness to travel and, and see the world in that way. And even though you experience it through like more lived experience, do you encourage travel through your, you know, through your experiences, seeing parts of the world? Yeah. I mean, I love to travel. Um, I think I'm, I'm a Sagittarius and apparently one of the stereotypes about Sagittarius is, is that we're like always antsy and trying to travel somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I also, you know, I don't know if it's my place to be out here telling people like get out there and travel because, you know, I haven't, yes, I love to travel and yes, it's been enriching and I've learned a lot, but also a lot of my trauma comes from experiences of travel. Uh, like, you know how hard it is to be a Muslim at the airport? You know what I mean? Like. You know how hard it is to be a black person anywhere? So I, mm-hmm. I don't know that I could in good faith tell someone who 
maybe even has like just found something that feels like some semblance of safety in their like domestic local environment to be like get out there and see the world because yes the world is beautiful and there's so much to learn but also the world is hard the, mm. and the world is pretty consistently anti-black and you mm. know so like i mean yes i would love to see like whatever the wonders of the world and all that stuff um and i would love to be like all black people everywhere should see the pyramids and <laughs> you know but like yes those places are amazing but any place you go to you also go to the people and you also go to the culture and you go to the attitudes and it is harder for some people than others to be in those mm. spaces where you know there are parts of the world where i can navigate fairly easily but rarely by myself because being a woman traveling alone i don't think is fun anywhere or like safe anywhere you know um i won't say it's not fun because i'm sure it could be fun but it's not a guarantee it's not a guarantee <laughs> and it, it's a lot to think about so i don't know that it's a like a flippant statement that i can make like everyone should get out and see the world i wish i think what i wish is for a world that has gotten its shit together enough <laughs> that anyone who wants to go see the world can go see the world without having to ask themselves how do they feel about women in this place how do they feel about black people in this place how do they feel about muslims in this place I want all that stuff to be resolved so that if I want to go see the Taj Mahal, I can go see the Taj Mahal and not have to think twice about who do I have to go with or how do I get there or what do I have to do when I'm there or, mm. you know, insert any other like landmark or experience. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, so back to your writing a little bit. Is it a yearning to get out and express what's inside of you that drives you to write these beautiful words? I don't know that it's even that I'm thinking about a product at all or like a finished object ever when I'm writing where, you know, my writing process might be different if I like kept a journal or was like a diary keeper or something, but I just never got into that habit. Um, And so writing usually just starts off as being just like how I, I work something out. And I mm. think especially these past couple of years, um, my writing process hasn't been even a, like a question of I'm going to sit down and write about this thing. You know, it, that used to be for a long time what my writing process was like, where like this thing happened or I feel x way about y so i have to sit down and write it until i process it or until I, hmm. i i figure out what's going on but now did that become frustrating so you it, chose it, it became frustrating and also boring because then it meant that something had to happen to me or had to hurt me for me to feel like then i mm. can write and i don't i i don't want to associate something that i love with being something you know with with trauma and with hurt so When trauma and hurt were the engine, the engine that I that I was writing from, mm -hmm. then it meant that if I ever got to a place in my life where I was only ever happy, then I couldn't write, um, and I didn't want that either. So now I'm trying to figure out a way to be able to be a writer and also a happy person. Mm. Um, so now, when I sit down to write, it's not because I'm trying to write about something. 
where I think now it's a little more about doing experiments and and trying to learn something and trying to do something I don't already know how to do. Um, so more often than not, when I sit down to write now, I don't know what the poem's going to be about. I kind of have to see it all the way through and be like, oh, huh, what do you know? That poem was about my brother. And mm. now it's not that I sit down and I'm like, okay, today I'm going to write a poem about my brother, you know? So you just got yourself to play around a little bit more? Yeah, I think play is like the, the operative word now in my writing process, and I'm having a lot more fun. Oh, that's cool. So, I mean, it's, it's words, it's, it's words, poems, your voice at times, but it still sounds like you're composing a song like mm -hmm. a musician would do when they're figuring out what, not necessarily going into the studio to think, I want to make a song about X, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's, that's beautiful. More joy, more play. <laughs> um, are there any places within that you're never willing to go on the page? Do you hide any sweetness, any anger, tenderness about you, coveting it intentionally for yourself and your own spirit? You know, I think I'm willing to put myself through a lot in my poems, my like autobiographical I, but I think where I feel protective in my writing is when when it's about other people that I feel whose stories I feel responsible for doing right by or feel responsible for keeping secret because sometimes it's not my story to tell, especially if they haven't told it themselves yet first. Um, so when I'm writing about my family, I, I find myself being very careful. And there's a lot of stuff that I won't talk about because you know, it's family business. Um, and it, I think I try not to think about just like any sort of public eye on my work while I'm writing, because that's the quickest way to not write a poem. But I think now I have to be <laughs> responsible in that way where I'm like, okay, if I write this poem about something that happened to my mom, and then I send that poem out to be published, then I just put my mom's business on the internet or in a magazine or in whatever. And that's not my place. And I don't, that doesn't feel ethical. So I think it's not, I think it's a question of ethics for me when, when I think through that question, where what, how can I still have that process of experimentation and play and freedom while still being ethical mm. about it? Um, mm -hmm. And as far as parts of myself, I think I'm, I'm pretty open with my general business because I think um, if I can help it, I try not to keep secrets about myself because I don't know, I'm not good at keeping secrets about myself. Um, and because then it feels like I have something to hide if I am hiding something. So mm, you hate that feeling. I don't like that feeling because then it, if I would be willing to talk in public about something that I did, then that, that's me being able to get behind everything that I do and, and feeling like it's not wrong and so I don't have to keep it secret mm -hmm. um, is the way that I figure it. But it's also not up to me to make that decision for other people's stories right. or processes right. or whatever. Um, but there is some stuff that I haven't figured out how to just translate into my writing yet, where I still have a hard time writing happiness. I think I can write joy as of recently because it feels bigger in that way, but happiness, like just little, like day-to-day -day contentness. I don't know that that lives anywhere in my poems. Um, 
Like, I don't know that there's a poem where I just get to be like, you know, yesterday I watched Mad Men with my partner and we had a great time. That's, and I don't know if it's that, I don't need that to be in a poem. And if, and I don't know if that's because that, that's something that gets to just be mine. Do um, you search for it? I don't know that I, I have felt the need to, is the thing. Um, because, yeah, it, it feels like something that I can come home to at the end of the workday when I've like put my pen down and go back mm -hmm. to like the treat that I've been saving for myself. Mm -hmm. Because then mm -hmm. if my entire world is in my writing, then I truly have no like separation of church and state. So it, it's nice to just have, hmm. you know, some like mundane daily stuff that mm -hmm. isn't even necessarily too sacred to write about, but it's just that it gets to be part of my actual life and not my writing life. Okay. Wow. Sounds healthy. I'm trying. Yeah. Um, and then I think I also don't know how to write humor necessarily. I think my poems are funny. No one else thinks my poems are funny. So, but I think that comes from that space of play again, where a lot of times the guiding question when I'm writing a poem is like, wouldn't it be strange if I, whatever, it, wouldn't mm. it be funny if I, whatever. I think you'd, your poems would suffer if you were trying to be funny. Yeah. yeah. I think I also don't know how to like <laughs> write like humor as like a craft, you know, uh -huh. I'll like, crack a joke with a friend, but I'm in no way like I know how to write a funny poem because yeah. I don't. Yeah. Um, but I think there's like a smaller scale humor that maybe doesn't translate into the poems themselves, but is very present in the writing process because that's just the space that I'm in a lot of times where I'm interested in, in strangeness in the poem and I'm interested in doing something weird, doing something that like I secretly think is funny, but once it's out in the world, people are like, oh, what a sad poem. And then I have my little laugh by myself at the end of the day. And do you truly laugh out loud when you no, make yourself like laugh? like a quiet chuckle. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's yours always. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes I like have kind of random thoughts and then I take advantage of sit, uh, hanging out and being with uh, very smart people. <laughs> And then I rattle it off and then see if I can turn it into a question. Cool. So, um, so sometimes I just, you know, think about shit, right? And um, I think with personal reflections, if we're hopefully doing that constantly as we get older, mm -hmm. we learn to give birth to new selves as we change and evolve, shed whatever conditioning we get from family or society. Mm -hmm. In that ongoing discovery of truths about ourselves and even giving birth to false selves, mm -hmm. What do we do with those self-discoveries? What do you do? Hmm. Like when you go inward deeply, what do you do with your revelations? I don't know that I do anything with my revelations. I think I, I like to sit in a revelation. I like to, you know, meditate on it, dwell on it, maybe write about it, but more often than not, not. You take a lot of time to process things? It, I'm such a slow processor. It, it'll take me three hours to be like, that big feeling I felt, I was mad. Mm. You know, so, I yeah, I don't know that when it comes to self-discovery and self-reflection, I don't know that I do a lot of doing. I think it's all very internal, where I do a lot of like, like sitting on the couch thinking or like staring off into space and like inside something is like percolating, but I don't know what it is yet. What are some things in your life that are common that take a very long time to process? 
like for me, it's death, mm. death of, you know, friends or people I love that I've lost mm. way too soon. So anything, is there any common things that you, you know, this about yourself? Like I take a long, long time to process this specific thing. I think emotion in general, um, there, I feel like I talk about this expression all the time and then I learn the French of it again and then I forget it. But there is a French expression that translates to the spirit of the stairs, which is like coming up with like the perfect thing to say, like after the conversation is already over. Um, and that's kind of my whole life, which uh -huh. you know, it helps being a writer, I guess. But I, I feel a lot, but I don't quite have, I guess, ironically enough, I don't have a huge vocabulary from my own feelings. So in a moment, I will be just like overcome with just something. It feels like, I just know that it's like capital F feeling, but I couldn't tell you until after that I like, oh, I was like embarrassed or sad or angry or grateful or, you know, it, I just mm. know that like something happens and then I feel big stuff and I don't know what to call the thing until the moment has like super, super passed. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And I thought there, you know, there was a time where I thought, the more I wrote, the more I'd become like fluent in being able to talk about my own feelings, but I'm still no good at talking about my feelings. I can like talk about like my thoughts and hopes and dreams until everyone gets bored, but my feelings, I don't know a whole lot about. Hmm. You mean in terms of articulating them? Yeah. Mm. And, and I'm sure our audience appreciates processing, experiencing you and when you're on stage with your words. When you're on stage, um, how is silence important to you? Hmm. I love silence. I, um, I think, especially, you know, having been on the road for a while now and, you know, there are times where I'll do a similar set, like, uh, several nights in a row. Um, and I think part of how, I mean, part of how I keep myself from like fucking hating the poems, you know, or the job or anything is that I have to, I, I can't automate myself. Um, because if it's just, if, and you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a like a protection element there where I could just like get up on stage and go on autopilot and like in the meantime think about what I want to have for dinner and what Food Network show I hope is on when I get back to the hotel. Well, I mean, if, if what if you're in a particular environment that just kind of feels uncomfortable, maybe like the whitest thing ever, do you ever automate because you're not feeling the spirit of the room? I used to, but that kind of... Didn't feel good? It, it, it comes back to bite me in the ass because I feel like I need to be more present than ever there to be able to advocate for myself mm. in a way that feels good because I, mm -hmm. there have been like a couple of white spaces where I just went in and like did the poems that I always do and then realized that that's not the audience that I want to trust with that particular stuff. Um, so I think the, the spaces where I feel the most comfortable are usually where I, I don't have to think too much about what poems I want to do. Um, or sometimes the opposite, where because I feel comfortable, then I give myself permission to like 
experiment a little bit and maybe read a poem that I wouldn't usually read or read a poem in a way that I don't normally read it. But unfortunately, that's not the kind of space that I'm often in. It usually is a mostly white, usually academic space. So then I have to be like, okay, here's a poem where if someone says something stupid to me about it afterwards, I have a prepared thing that I can say. Here's a poem that doesn't rely too heavily on the lived experience of my family or friends. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, so the, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, I was at a, I don't remember where it was now, I think it was in Ohio, but I, I was at a university, a predominantly white university mm -hmm. with a predominantly white audience. Um, and I don't even know why I did this because usually the way I like to do my sets is I just read the poems back to back because I think my banter ruins my poems because my jokes aren't good. <laughs> so this time I don't, I don't know what came over me, but I was reading poems and I was talking a little bit in between, I think because they'd also given me a really big time slot. And I was uh -huh. like, you know, what would be torture <laughs> for everyone involved is if I just read poems for an hour and a half. So you know, I was talking a little bit, I was telling stories and then I told this story about my grandfather, which I think is a really like sweet, beautiful story about how, um, you know, my, my grandfather, I like resent even having to say this, but like speaks very good English. Um, you know, like has a fucking Ivy league graduate degree from an American university. But you know, the older he gets, the more he retreats back into the language he feels most comfortable in. Cause he's about to turn 90 and he can do whatever he fucking wants at this point. <laughs> so, I think the more time he goes without speaking English consistently, the more stuff starts to mix up in his head a little bit or, or revert to just a direct translation of a thought that occurred to him in Arabic. And in Arabic, there's no difference between the word for like and the word for love. And he, we were at a restaurant, we were at an Italian restaurant, and he, um, he got a little mix, mixed up. The waitress came in and was trying to take his order. And in you know, he was trying to say, I would like some tomato soup. And he just kept saying to her, I love tomato soup. And she was, you know, very confused. And we were all like, oh, this is what a sweet, funny thing that's happening. Eventually she figured out that he was saying, I would like some tomato mm -hmm. soup. So I'm telling this room full of white people this story to illustrate something that I find beautiful about the Arabic language. And they think it's so funny. And I look up and all these people are laughing at, basically at my grandpa. And, you know, I... That, you know, unfortunately that had to be the way I learned my lesson that not all stories are for all audiences and mm. not all my business is everyone's business. Mm. Um, I think if they were laughing that hard at a story about me, I could have taken it, you know? But I, I felt like a traitor in that space. I felt like I brought my grandpa into the space and didn't protect him and then just had to like sit back while all these people left. So now um, if I know I'm going to be in a room like that again, then I'm a little more... I guess, careful. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think I maybe went off on a tangent from the original question, but I hope that was in the neighborhood. No, no, was, of, I mean, you, you, you spoke to silence too. Um, if there's anything more you want to say about silence, feel free. Uh, no, silence is great. <laughs> you, you know, you talked a little bit about happiness and those dynamics and happiness versus joy for you. How do you think about sadness at this point in your life? Um, it's, you know, it's just a part of my day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, 
I think I'm sad often, but I don't think I'm a sad person, which mm-hmm. I feel like I have to clarify more often than that because I suppose there is a way of reading my poems in which they are sad as fuck. Um, but like generally, I'm okay, you know? It, yeah. The poems help in that it's like a place to put the stuff and then I get to move on and have my regular life and my regular day. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Feeling sad, I guess like helps me remember that I'm not a robot. So is sadness ever peaceful? Oh, that, that sounds very noble and amazing. No, my sadness is like messy and just sad. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta ask. I never, I never asked that before. Um, I do see that there's like, I I don't know if, I think I see this mostly in art and not in people, but I think there is a way to do a kind of like dignified melancholy, but that that's, you know, I don't know how to do that. I'm just, when I'm sad, I'm just sad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So in writing, um, how do you, how do you handle letting ideas go? Is it at all similar to letting go of a love? Um, it's more like letting go of like, it's like being like going shopping and being like, you know, love that shirt, but shouldn't spend money right now. So just because I love it doesn't mean I have to own it. Let me just release it back into the world and, you know, I will find other things to make me happy. Mm-hmm. So I think um, ideas used to feel, it used to feel like I was living and writing in like a, a economy of scarcity and that economy was just like purely in my own world and head where I, mm. it, I just didn't trust that the work was coming because I was working on it. It, it felt mm-hmm. like, you know, I think, I think it's easy to get attached to ideas about like inspiration and inspiration as like this, like divine visiting spirit that exists outside my body and just like descends on me because somehow <laughs> I'm like lucky and the, the stars are aligned and the tides are low or whatever. I don't know. So it used to feel like if an idea came to me and I didn't write it down immediately, then I, you know, then maybe it wouldn't come again. Um, but sometimes, I don't know, sometimes like I'm sleepy or I'm busy or like mm-hmm. I have to like talk to my dentist about my day or whatever. You know, dentists love to talk to you while you can't really talk. So ideas will come to me often at times where there is no physical way that I could write it down. Mm-hmm. And I just have to be okay with letting it go. And maybe it'll come back. Maybe it won't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to believe that there is more where that came from. Otherwise, I don't feel like I have any agency in my job. Otherwise, then I'm just like a mule for some like divine spirit to come and like pass an idea off through me. And then I'm back to just being a nothing person. Hmm. So I have to believe that the ideas come from my brain. And so there must be more in there somewhere. Hmm. When and where do you feel most alone in this world? You know, I don't mind feeling alone. I like being alone. But I think I am starting to make note of the spaces that I feel very lonely in. And I'm rarely lonely by myself because I think I keep pretty good company and I, you know, like fairly easy to entertain by myself. But part of the reason I don't like crowds is because there's there's something really overwhelming about being in a huge crowd of people and being like, wow, I am like 
one body and everything is vast and meaningless. But I don't know. Also, I just like don't like being touched by strangers and it's a whole thing for me. But I, I feel lonely. When I do feel lonely, it is usually around other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's why I don't like to be in rooms or spaces full of people. It's why I prefer to do my socializing in like small groups or one-on-one um, it's why I hate Times Square. It's why I mm-hmm. uh, no longer enjoy going to the club. It, you know, it's just like, because I think being in a crowd, then there's an sort of the, the assignment is to not feel lonely, um, <laughs> which then makes me feel like I've like failed a test or something. Um, so it, it just feels like there's less pressure when I'm by myself. Remember that age in our 20s when we thought the club was the funnest thing oh in the world? Oh, my God. <laughs> what was I thinking? Like, we were literally in a state of, this is so much fun. This is, my feet hurt, and everyone keeps touching me, but I'm having a great time. What is that? I, I think my standards were lower or something. <sighs> <laughs> so. You know what feels like the club to me now? What? Going to bed at 10.30 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Not a 30 club yet. (laughs) (laughs) I peaked early. (laughs) Um, So when and where do you feel most connected in the world? Um, You could have already answered that, but, you know. You know, with with my family, with my friends. Smaller Um, settings. Yeah, smaller settings. um, And with yourself when you're alone. Yeah. um, But, you know, I really like hanging out with my grandparents. Mm -hmm. Um, I like... Like sitting quietly with my brother while we each do separate things. Um, I like uh, sitting in a hotel bed with a bunch of my friends watching old music videos. Um, so I, you know, I'm I'm not an especially complicated person. I think I, I'm. It's very easy to make me happy or keep me happy. Um, and so I think just like little moments of companionship, I think just mean the world to me. Mm. Okay. How do you balance cynicism and hope? You know, I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, I don't get so cynical is the thing. Um, and maybe I'm like dumb for it. Maybe it means I'm not paying enough attention or something. But I think like, yes, the world is going to end. But you know what I mean? Like we might as well just do what we can with what we got right now. I love um, how you identify what's boring because... No, but like some of your answers is not, it's not at all arrogance. Sometimes you're just like, but that's boring. (laughs) Thinking about the end of the world is boring, right? Well, because, you know, what can I do? What can I, (laughs) Safia, do about like the rising waters? You know what I mean? Like I can do what I can with what I've got and what I have access to. But, you know, I'm not a deity. I'm not a force of nature. I'm not going to be able to be like, yo, Pacific Ocean, chill out, you know? So <laughs> I can do, I can like recycle, you know? I can do what I can in my life and in my points of access. But uh-huh. I think, you know, I, I, I think the world that I live in within the greater fucked up broken world, you know, there there's... A part of my brain that can think at that scale, that thinks that maybe, you know, the the people that I love and surround myself with and the work that they do 
and the things that they write and the things that they teach and the things that they imagine, I think that stuff can be, could be a blueprint for a world that is better than this world. Hmm. And Hmm. I am the lucky motherfucker that gets to live in the microcosm of that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think if that was the greater world, then, you know, stuff would suck less. But in Mm -hmm. the meantime, that's the world of my day-to-day life. Um, And I, it would be stupid of me not to be grateful for that, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm. Um, So I think, you know, I'm, it would be dishonest not to also say that there are a lot of days where everything feels like insurmountable and it feels like what chance do I have at doing anything with all this racism and sexism and xenophobia and Islamophobia? It like, it, it, sometimes it feels like the whole world was designed to make me feel less than or powerless or marginalized. And some days it works, you know, um, some days I don't want to go outside because if someone cat calls me, it's going to fuck up my whole day. And I just don't have the bandwidth that day. Some days I don't want to go outside because if I, have someone say something racist to me or overhear something racist. I don't know that I will be able to pick myself back up from that there. You know, I, yes, I'm an optimist and yes, I'm a fairly happy person, but it's also, it's heavy. All like the world is heavy and it, it hurts a lot of the time. Um, so I think I try to be intentional about when I'm in a low moment, trying to, already knowing the stuff that I can reach for that will make me feel better. Um, Mm. But there are also times where I just have to sit in it. And sometimes where I just like, I'm not going to wallow. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life being like, oh, poor me. It's so hard to be me. But there are also some days where I'm like, you know what? Today it's hard to be me. And I'm, I'm taking a day off, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I don't, I don't have an answer. I don't have the answer, but I, there are like little things that I, that I try, that I'm trying. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. What are you tired of hearing? Now more than ever. <laughs> that phrase? That, yeah. It, um, I think this, well, this year and a little bit of last year also, um, a lot of the ways that people have been talking about not even just like work or art or just like any like utterance by a person of color or a Muslim or an immigrant or something. People act like just because now this is a a political moment where it feels like, you know, I think white people think that we are now more marginalized than we've ever been, but actually like not so much about my day-to-day life has changed between presidents, you know? So Mm -hmm. Um, not so much about like my macro life has changed between presidents, but I think a lot of white people in particular like to be like now more than ever, it's important to highlight Muslim voices and amplify black voices because now for the first time, you know, we hear that Sudanese people exist because Sudan was on a travel ban list for a second. So now more than ever, we want to hear what you Sudanese poet have to say. It's just, you know, it like... It's boring. I don't, it, it, 
There it is. You know, it, it makes it feel like none of us existed or were saying anything valid or interesting or intelligent until other people realized that we were being hunted. It's been dangerous. Yeah. You know, we, it, we've been in danger this whole time. So it's not now more than ever. It's literally same shit, different day. So mm -hmm. I think it's irresponsible and revisionist and narrow minded. Mm. to act like this moment is really any different for any of us than it's been living in this country since the inception of this country. So, yeah, I think now more than ever means that people don't know history. Um, and also, like... <laughs> you revealed yourself. ...have, like, never thought about, like, any of this stuff until this moment. Mm. Watch yourselves. Now more than, now more than ever. You gotta check yourself <laughs> Please out. Please don't now more than ever me. <laughs> <laughs> don't now more than ever me. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> you gotta say that kind of fast. <laughs> Go. Don't now more than ever me. Don't now more than ever me. <laughs> it's like don't at me, but longer. I oh, know that's why it's so hilarious. <laughs> so hilarious. Uh, uh, when is this work most fun? You know, it's often fun. Um, I I really love. Poems. I really love words. I love reading and write. It, it feels like such a racket that I get to do this and only this. Um, because I, you know, I, I talk a lot about how most members of my family are artists, but they all had to go get real jobs, you know? Um, and so for so long, I thought that part of becoming an adult was sacrificing the thing I love at that scale to become like a, I don't know, contributing member of society. Maybe I'm not a contributing member of society, but it, writing is so fun. Poems are so fun. It like, I like have a blast, like sitting at my desk, like coming up with the weirdest word for the thing, you know, mm. it, it like, it feels like getting to do the thing I do for pleasure all day, every day. Hmm. It, it's like a little unfair. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, and what's been truly sustaining you in your daily life? Um, you know, because so much of my life is on the road, routine is a weird luxury that I see in other people's lives that I don't mm -hmm. know how to have in mind. But now, so a, a new way that that's that that I'm trying to harness that is, I had about a two week break from touring um, before I got back on the road last week, and in those two weeks I started swimming. I used to swim when I was a kid, and then I haven't swum in a really long time because, you know, I have long thick curly hair, and it takes two days for it to dry. If I were to do that, um, but. I don't, I don't know how it started. I think my uncle invited me to go to his gym one day and I was like, I don't, I don't run. I'm not so interested in like the Stairmaster or whatever, but oh, they have a pool. Let me just like go swimming because it's winter and no one else is going to be in there. And it's, I remember it being very quiet underwater in a way mm. that I haven't, it hasn't like been quiet in my head or around my head mm. like that in a very long time. And then I found a public pool near where I live. It's like 10 minutes away on the bus and it's free and it's hmm. indoors and the water is like, like perfectly warm. Um, and no one's 
again, it's winter. No one's ever in there. I'm like the one weird person that likes to go swimming in December. So hmm. now that I'm on the road again, um, I've become like the unbearable person with the writer who now is like asking for a hotel that has an indoor pool. Um, so the hotel I'm saying it has a pool. So yesterday and today I'm like, so and it's like, not why? like a lap wow. pool. Like, it's why? not like an athletic pool. It's like a little like hexagon shaped pool where you. people like go to have fun and relax. And I'm like the weird person doing laps <laughs> in that pool. <laughs> but it, it's nice to have this like one weird thing that I do almost every day. It's like the constant Mm -hmm. in my life where I have really no other constants. So it must have meant a lot to finally get that as a person who tours. Yeah, it's uh, again, it's maybe the strangest thing about me and, and I'm a, a strange person, but it's now that it's part of my life, it feels like mandatory if I can make it happen. You know, it I like I was having kind of a weird morning and then I was like, you know, I there's no one by the pool because there's also stuff around the pool in the hotel. So I was waiting until it just the coast was clear. And then I went in and I just like put my head underwater for a little bit and everything quieted down and it, my day immediately got better. You know, it's, again, I'm not a very complicated person. It's really often that simple. Hmm. And how does that energize you to, you know, if you happen to swim the day of your, of a performance, how does that uh, invigorate you some more? Uh, I mean, I feel very awake now because I just spent like a good portion of my day in like not hot water. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, I mean, one of the first things to go when I started touring was like consistent exercise. So I think part of the thing with swimming now is I realized that day to day, I don't move very much. I, you know, writing is kind of a stationary job. And then touring is also very stationary because it's like my ass goes from the desk to the train, to the airplane, to the car, to the hotel room. So it, I don't remember the last time I felt so in my body and like my body was a thing I could do things with. Cause it's usually like people are interested like in my brain and in my computer, you know? So mm. my body is usually like bottom of the list of parts of my day that I think are valuable. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to just be like, kind of my brain has nothing to do with this. Like how good I am at speaking English has nothing to do with this. It's just like, I kick my legs and I move my arms and it, you know, it's hard because I haven't done it in a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's also nice to do a thing every day that no one has told me that I'm good at. Because mm -hmm. then it feels like it belongs to me in that way, you know? Mm -hmm. I think I'm in the process of very, very slowly writing a second book of poems. And part of the reason why that's hard is because now whenever I sit down to write, there's the pressure of this being a thing that people have told me that I'm good at. So then I have to keep doing it well. And so that's, I, I need the luxury of being a beginner in like a, a space where no one is watching me. And you know, I'm not a very good swimmer is the thing. I'm not out here like doing like the little advanced level flips at the end of the lap and shit. It's like, I go and then I stop and I rest because I'm very tired. Yeah. And then I go and I like slowly make my way back across the lane and it, I'm having so much fun doing this thing that I'm really bad at. Huh. That's great. Did you used to swim in the ocean? I, I didn't really grow up going in the ocean a lot. I, I like went to a swim camp when I was a kid. So it's been like chlorine and blue water mm. in most of my life. So it's, I'm also like, I mean, chlorine's disgusting and I feel like I'm now like ashy all the time, but <laughs> it's the muscle memory and just the smell of the chlorine and everything is really soothing. Sure. And that all comes back to a lot of, appreciation for silence right yeah it's 
You know where it's most quiet is underwater in a pool that no one else is in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you want listeners to know? Hmm. Um, what do I want listeners to know? I don't know. I I don't know that I want to make any like sweeping prescriptive statements. Um, sunlight is great. Uh, you sh- if you're a writer, you should probably read something before you write. If you can't remember the last time you read something, you probably shouldn't be writing. Um, and if you feel like you're having a weird day, maybe go outside and take a walk. Cool. I just took a little bit of that advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, what art are you currently taking in that is giving you life, recharging you? Um, I've been reading a lot. Um, I... I just read today, um, let me see. I'm trying to think what book I want to say I recommend. Well, people should be reading poetry. I know there's like all this hype where people are like, poetry is taking over everything else, but no, it's what? still like, Who? What? Who? yeah, it's, you know, people are like, people are reading more poetry now more than ever, but it's still a, like a really, small market and uh, no one buys poetry books. So buy a poetry book or ask your library to buy a poetry book. Um, the January children start yeah, there. Like that too. But <laughs> I, um, I just reread The Poet X, which is a young adult novel in verse by Elizabeth Acevedo. Um, and I really love that book. I, I keep revisiting it and thinking that if I had had that book when I was a younger person, I would have had an easier time of it, I think. Um, hmm. What else? Um, yeah, that, that's all I got. I, I think I lost steam a little bit there, but read books. Books are cool. Read poems. Poems are the best. Hey. <laughs> cool. Um, do you have social media? I do. Um, I quit Facebook, which has really improved my overall quality of life. Hey. Uh, but I'm on Twitter at Mafia Safia, and I'm on Instagram at Safia Mafia. Because right. the Safia Mafia handle was already taken by the time I joined Twitter. Yeah, cool. Um, Safia, <laughs> Safia, hello. Thank you so much for joining us on Weapon of Choice Podcast. Thank you Really for appreciate me. it. It's been an honor. That was great. Thank you, Safia. Really happy Safia took the time while on tour and that we got to have that conversation and get to know each other a bit. And just so appreciative that poets and artists like Safia have come on the show and uh, been a part of this thing we're trying to do at Weapon of Choice. So, season two. That is it for season two. Um, maybe there will be a bonus episode in between season two and three. We'll see. I try to catch artists when they go, you know, end up you know, on our radar somehow, on tour, pop-up events. I don't know. You know, we got to keep showing up we got to show up community has to show up all of you have to show up in what ways that work for you and uh figure out you know what fires are burning inside you that can never be extinguished you know what are you passionate about in terms of the issues that we have to continue to have hope 
that we'll uh, turn around and write some write some systematic wrongs along the way as a community, as a collective of people fighting for what we believe in, fighting for our humanity, and fighting for the truth. Uh, we're going to keep showing up in this way, bringing you these interviews and conversations, and we'll see you out there in other arenas. And, uh, you know, just stay in touch. Like, we want to hear from you. Um, we want to know um, if you're listening anywhere in the world. How you feeling? How's your life going? What are you thinking about? What are these conversations and interviews on Weapon of Choice have you thinking about some more? Um, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us any way you'd like. If it's social media, do it there. If you want to email us, it's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. Let us know how you're doing. Also, let us know what art are you taking in that's really giving you hope, re-energizing you, you know, giving you some strength, something you like to wake up to, end your day to, get through the day to. What art are you taking in? What is it? Is it music? Something else? Let us know. And uh, yeah, this is us. Special Menu Productions, as always. Our theme music, of course, is by none other than Renee Copeland. Uh, we love Renee. <laughs> uh, the, the music that, uh, you know, is still to come from Renee Copeland. The, uh, the dances that she choreographs, the collaborations, all of it. It's, uh, we're lucky. We're lucky, Minnesota. And, uh, yeah, Andrew, you hear all these interludes sometimes. You hear these little jams during these interludes while, while, I'm, while I'm blabbing away. Well, that is Andrew. He's a talented man. More music to come from him as well. And uh, hopefully he can take us out uh, <laughs> for some time to come in these outros. And uh, we'll see what he's cooking up for us now as we leave you with the season two finale thank you everyone so much for listening really appreciate it uh i can't tell you how much we appreciate uh the people listening the people donating to the patreon yes people are giving their hard-earned dollars to weapon of choice to help sustain us and if you would like to as well you can go to patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast and get any amount a dollar or more a month we appreciate every cent and we will use that to honor the ways we want to grow this program and strengthen our capacity to have more conversations that uh, are important that we feel are important that we know you think are important because you're tuning in and you're letting us know with your dollars and with your comments and your messages and your spreading of the word. So keep doing that. We appreciate it in any way, form or fashion. This is Tommy Franklin, Andrew Bender, and we are representing all of you who give a fuck, who give a shit. And uh, we love you and we will see you next time. Peace. <laughs>